Resilient, a podcast designed to help heal and support the El Paso community. Hello, I'm your host, Mariana Sierra, Outreach Coordinator for the El Paso United Family Resiliency Center, a program of United Way of El Paso County. We are dedicated to serve those who were impacted directly or indirectly by August 3rd. Join us on the journey to long-term recovery as we have honest conversations with local leaders, mental health specialists, and fellow El Pasoans who share their stories and expertise. We feature topics that influence and impact the vitality and resilience of our community. We are El Paso United, and together we heal. Juntos sanamos. Dear listener, Before we begin, a note of warning. The topic we're about to explore contains a mention of the mass casualty event and a description of the events that unfolded thereafter. This episode may not be suitable for everyone. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of United and Resilient. During the month of April, the FRC joins national efforts in raising awareness on sexual assault. The FRC understands that abuse and violence can come in different shapes and forms and it's important to recognize that sexual assault can touch the lives of many, regardless of their age, race, sexual orientation, or gender. For this episode, we had a touching but insightful conversation with Sandra Garcia, Executive Director of Center Against Sexual and Family Violence. And throughout our conversation, we'll speak on the common stigmas that surround sexual assault and the importance of providing safe spaces for our youth to be educated and listened to. We will also discuss how we can move from awareness to action that can actually transcend and make a huge impact in our society. Sandra, welcome to United and Resilient. Thank you, Mariana. Thank you for having us. Sandra, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, the work that CASB does, and a little bit about your journey and experience in this role? Absolutely. Um, So as you mentioned, my name is Sandra Nevarez Garcia. I am the executive director for the center, and I've had the pleasure of working with survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault for the past 18 years. Um, I originally started as an advocate in our emergency shelter. Um, From them, just progressed throughout the agency to be our shelter director and then our director of client services for about 10 years. So I've done a multitude of, of of jobs within the organization in sense of um, working directly with clients, answering hotlines, doing hospital accompaniment, um, providing expert witness um, for court cases that um, may have needed some additional information and some education for the jury. And so the the work that we do at the center is just something that I absolutely fell in love with. Um, I'm not a social worker by trade in the sense that my, I majored in criminal justice with a minor in psychology. Um, so I giggle because um, it wasn't an area necessarily that, that I was pursuing, but it was one that once I had exposure to, I absolutely fell in love with the work um, and have had the, the opportunity to work alongside wonderful staff throughout these years and particularly to have the ability to meet some of the strongest individuals in our community as they work through their personal situations in dealing with the domestic violence and sexual assault. Well, that is wonderful, Sandra. I'm very pleased with you being here in our podcast because I know you can provide a lot of insight and a lot of education to our audience. And 
at this moment, would you tell us a little bit about your organization's work and their commitment that they have to our borderland? Absolutely. So the Center Against Sexual and Family Violence has gone through a couple of, of um, stages of growth, if you will. And so when I first started, we used to be called your shelter for battered women in, in the community. And so we are your local rape crisis center and your local domestic violence program um, that provides services to Hudspeth, Culberson, and El Paso counties. So the center in itself um, has grown significantly throughout um, the time that I've been with the agency, we started primarily as an emergency shelter. That's probably what we're known more for in the community. But that program has grown into our family resource center, our battering intervention and prevention program, and now um, converted that over to our prevention and intervention program, um, working with primary prevention along with um, accountability groups for aggressors. And so what the center provides in terms of the community is not only emergency shelter that's comprehensive in the sense of you have access to a 24-hour hotline, there is 24-hour staff, um, people come into shelter at any particular time just as an as-needed basis, but that program in itself has a children's program, um, advocates or, or slash caseworkers that work with our clients to help them navigate the system and connect them to different resources in our community. But we also have a full-fledged commercial-sized kitchen because we provide all their meals, you know, from breakfast, lunch, dinner, 3.30 and 7.30 snack. And so we're able to provide emergency shelter to anywhere between 800 individuals to the upwards of a little over a thousand, depending on the year. I will say that in our emergency shelter, the highest number of individuals are our children. So each adult will come in, as you can imagine, with either as a single individual or a family. I think the largest we've had is like a family of nine that's come in and, and sought shelter. And so those individuals are just connected, provided, supported, and given just the services that they might need at this particular time and really kind of connected them to maybe other services that they weren't aware of. So then when you think of our, and that's, so that's our res, a residential component. So we have a whole other side, which is our non-residential. And I think the non-residential is something I, I always love to highlight because I think oftentimes the community thinks of the centers as a shelter and why that's the most um, immediate type of service, right, and in, in, in the sense of, of its accessibility 24 hours a day. Our Family Resource Center actually sees probably about 3,200 clients a year, and so that program provides the same services that the shelter does, except obviously they don't live there, and so these individuals come in for advocacy, support groups, therapy, immigration services, um, workforce services, just depending what it is that they need. So not every individual or every victim of domestic violence or sexual assault will need shelter or want to come to shelter. Oftentimes they do have some other level of support. And so the Family Resource Center, um, so RFRC is what we call it, um, really comes into play to provide that continual support and connect that continuum of care. So if you went to shelter, you can continue services here. If you needed, if you never needed to go to shelter, you continue with services here at our Family Resource Center. 
Awesome. Well, I admire Caspi and what they do for our community. I think it's so important, so important to provide the services when, when, you know, when you're dealing with something like this with violence, with domestic violence, sexual violence, it's so vital for you to have a helping hand and for you to have you know, someone to go to professional help. So thank you so much for your commitment that you have for our community members. Um, and actually, our FRC, the Family Resiliency Center, does have a partnership with you all. And we are so excited to have this partnership um, because uh, as we mentioned before in this podcast, you know, we definitely believe that non-traditional therapy can support traditional therapy and can be a segue to traditional therapy. So um, CASV is one of our partners. It's one of our providers of this non-traditional therapy. So would you please take this moment to discuss one of the um, services that we have that we, can, that we provide through our FRC? Definitely. So I think that um, it's something that I think we were really privileged to be a part of. Um, so there is a series of classes that are being offered through the Family Resiliency Center by our staff. And so it's wanting to connect with individuals on different levels. And so um, we encourage you to, you know, go to the United Way event page and look at the calendar as it may change from month to month. But we have um, Nurturing Inside Out. So talking about strengthening strengthening families um, and that family dynamic, because I know that that can oftentimes be challenging. Um, we also have our stand by or stand up, which is talking about like prevention um, and advocating and learning skills and knowledge. And so a lot of times we are previewed to situations and we're trying to figure out how do we, do we intervene? Should we not intervene? Um, what are things that we can do to support one another? And so looking at those different tactics or tools um, or figuring out how I can uh, be a better neighbor, if you will, um, is also really important. And then we also have our empowering family dynamics, so building um, healthy families. And so I think, you know, we all have a concept of what a healthy family looks like. Um, That doesn't always mean that that's the way our family looks like. And I think oftentimes, rather than trying to achieve that goal, we get stuck, right? Because we're, we're individuals that um, we're, we're used to, we're, we're creatures of habit. And so we go back to what we know. And so talking about like, what, what does that look like for your family? Um, what are some easy kind of tidbits and tools that we can do and start with um, that can start to develop and cultivate that, those healthy relationships within um, our own networks, right? Our own nucleus of our family is really important. And then also creating healthy boundaries. Um, Boundaries are always something that's challenging. Um, I think, obviously, as a Hispanic and a predominantly Hispanic community, it's something that we don't, especially as women, um, really focus on oftentimes. There's some things that we might do culturally that kind of push off boundaries, but we, we partake in the activities because we are um, Hispanic. That's the way we were brought up. That's just something we do. It's custom. It's tradition. Just healthy boundaries is talking about what are those things and what what makes sense for you as an individual, for you as a family unit, uh, for you as a household, and how do you start to bring up those conversations? Or maybe even as as an audience member or a participant in these programs, is you sharing with the group of what has worked for you um, is really important. So it's really kind of a give and take on multiple levels over various sessions. 
A hundred percent. And you know, Sandra, something that you brought up and it's so important about the establishing healthy families. I think I think back when I was, you know, in high school and um, middle school, we didn't we didn't have these tools and especially for healthy relationships. And as you grew up, you're like where was this information when I, I, you know, and I'm, I'm so thankful that you guys are providing this information for, for, you know, for families, for youth, um, because it can prevent so many things. And it, like I said, in the, in the, in the beginning, it, it can provide a helping hand, right? Again, I go back to my high school years. I think it's so crucial to provide this education for young adults um, on how to establish health relationships and have an honest discussion about what are the red flags and what are the things that you should be looking at and what are the things that are not okay. And you might think it's okay because, you know, society has established certain standards that are not healthy at all. So um, we definitely do provide those classes and those workshops thanks to the to our our relationship with Caspi so definitely do um log into our website and see the the services that we provide cuz they're all great i've taken them and i think i think they're wonderful and i like i said i go back to my to my younger years and i'm like where was this this is so great like i would have like benefited so much from all of this information um but now Sandra, i want to talk about you know, this month, April, is uh, Sexual Violence Awareness Month. And that's why we wanted to have an honest conversation with an expert about these issues. Um, and, you know, as I, we see so many movements, right? We see the, the feminist movement, we see the Women's March, and it feels like there's a more open discussion about sexual violence, the red flags, prevention. Yet, what are some of the common stigmas that are surrounding this topic till this day? So those are, that's a great question. I think that while we've made huge strides in multiple areas, it also almost feels like we're still stuck in certain areas, um, oddly enough. Um, So when you think of, For instance, males coming forward as victims of sexual assault. Um, Oftentimes, people still cannot conceptualize how that can happen and that a man cannot be raped. Um, The LGBTQ community falls under the same um, misconception. Um, The idea that um, with sexual assault in particular, even I think more so than domestic violence, we victimize and blame the victim for for the action that's happened. Yes. Um, it's it's oftentimes, you know, if, if you, when we were talking about this, well, we've had multiple conversations, obviously, as you can imagine, within our organization. But when someone's sexually assaulted, this idea of, um, well, where, where were they, right? Like, Yes, you know, that's the first question that they ask, yeah. Right, and God forbid you were, you know, out having a drink because, well, that's what happened. Um, God forbid you didn't park by the, you know, huge parking lot light because then you should have parked there. Yet, when you think of other types of crimes, like if someone was burglarized, right, or someone broke into your car or whatnot, you're not immediately questioning them of, well, where did you park? And oh my God, well, why do you have such a nice car? They wouldn't have stolen it if it wasn't so nice. Um, You know, what kind of house do you have and where do you live? Well, that's why they burglarized burglarized you. 
with victims, you know, those conversations don't happen. Yet with a victim of sexual assault, immediately we start judging unknowingly, I think sometimes. For some reason, we've been, we've been socialized that when something like, like a sexual assault happens, immediately it's, it couldn't have happened to a man, right? Because they're lying. Um, it was partially your fault if you were drinking or doing drugs. Um, if you're a sex worker of any type, if you, you know, work in the adult industry, entertainment industry, it's the, there's no way that that person could have been raped um, because look, look at what they already do. Um, and then the other biggest one is that they try to come up with is it has to be a false claim, right? Those reports are just not true. Um, more people report um, sexual assault is uh, falsely, and that's absolutely not true. It's actually not any more than any other crime, and the percentage is extremely low. It's anywhere between, depending on which report you read, it's between 2 and 8% of false reporting, which is not, is very online with pretty much any other type of, of crime. So when individuals are disclosing, um, especially if it is a male, if it is someone from the LGBTQ community, if it's an individual, a child, oftentimes those I think are really difficult cases to deal with for a family member. It's all, oh, they must have misunderstood. It didn't happen. They're making it up. And I think right there is like step one, like you've already created a barrier. So the main thing is to make sure that you believe, uh, believe what they're saying, trust what they're saying. Yes, I agree with you. And I would add, um, Sandra, just because of experiences that I had with friends that I have with friends currently, mm -hmm. um, even if it's something that happened 10, 15 years ago, you know, I, I do see the stigma of, well, why didn't he or she say something back then? when it happened. And I think when, that's one of the most relevant things that I've seen, um, that there's a lot of judgment if you didn't speak up. And I guess it, it, it's, I, I go back to what I said at the beginning, right? It's just so hard to speak about these issues. And, you know, we have to respect the healing path and everyone's timing, I guess I, I also see the stigma of, of people making that judgment that they, they might not respect that. No, definitely. And I think, so looking at even the cases with, like you're saying with your friends, oftentimes you have to remember that. So the age of vulnerability for males and females are all under the age of, of 25. So if you think of women are most vulnerable between the ages of 18 and 24, um, and then males is um, adolescent to preteens. And so if you think about who has exposure to these individuals, it's oftentimes family members, family friends, individuals that we're interacting with. And so when you think about what those experiences could have been or what that exposure is, is these are incidents where one, they're still trying to figure out just what's even going on, right, with my body. What does that kind of look like? And so the small percentage, I think, of individuals who make those outcries when we think about, well, why didn't you ever say anything? Well, if that individual who may have victimized me was a family friend that everyone thinks, you know, is a wonderful person, um, 
or that family member. And even as a child, you know, like, how do you explain that uncle so-and-so did something that was inappropriate or, or touched you inappropriately? Or how do you explain that your brother or sister, um, you know, engaged in this kind of behavior? And so a lot of times, unfortunately, there isn't an outcry. And so what tends to happen is as we grow up and we start to enter the world of dating and other relationships, these circumstances can then become barriers in these current relationships, um, obviously change the way we look at our own sexuality and intimacy with our partners. And so that's when these topics will come up and people hopefully will start to seek services for them. But the simple act of making that outcry when you're in a ch- when you're a child and to be able to verbalize it and how do you how do you do that so if you think about an adult having to make that outcry and the the determination that it takes and the courage that it takes oftentimes children either don't have the vocabulary or can't explain it um, and also are trying to understand it amongst everything and it's scary um, I'm not sure I want to do that and then just have to tear my family apart because you know that, that that's going to be a topic of conversation if you're believed, right? Because oftentimes you must have misunderstood because Uncle Joe would have never done something like that. Or are you sure? Um, so going back to how we treat victims, um, specifically about with sexual assault, right away we go into a questioning stage rather than a believing stage. Um, and validating those feelings and those situations for them. Yes, I was actually writing um, something the other day about, again, about sexual violence and awareness. And one of the things that I was writing was that whenever someone is coming to you, chances are you're the first person that they are reaching out to to save to, to share their experience, to share their stories. So one of the crucial things to do is to listen and just don't make questions and be genuinely listen. So thank you for sharing that. I, um, I do agree with that because sometimes when we're younger, we, don't, we really don't understand a lot of things that are going on. Um, now, Sandra, I want to talk about what are the things that, that has been done to remove these stigmas and what can we look forward to doing Uh, or working on to remove all the stigmas that we have discussed? So a couple of different aspects, I guess, come to mind. So one is obviously awareness, right? Awareness that it exists. What does it look like? How does it, you know, potentially start? Um, And statistical information uh, in terms of how many individuals will be affected, right? So the one in four females will be affected by some sort of sexual violence or the one in six males, um, that whole idea that they normally, you know, 80% of individuals do know they're the, the offender. The other part of it is also education in a different aspect, I think. Um, we have, we're fortunate enough as an organization to have our primary prevention program, which has an empowerment project. And so what this is, is it's housed, um, we started in Andres and worked with the feeder pattern there. And so we have two staff members that work with the youth in, in, in that area and really work around the idea of like, how do we come up with our, our thoughts and ideas revolving around um, relationships and intimacy and, 
And how is that, you know, what do you think of, what, what should an, a female portray or a male portray? And what are those characteristics and how do you explain that? And so with primary prevention in their curriculum, they really work around kind of bringing up those questions for you as a young adult. So all day long, every day, whether it's through the music we listen to, advertisements, um, even clothing advertisements, not even just regular commercials, we're being fed information. And that then builds and forms our ideas around intimacy, around, uh, you know, sex, males, females. And so this program really works on how do you dissect that? Is that, is that accurate? Um, is that reality? Um, how do we not as individuals perpetrate sexual violence? So, you know, we all have friends, we all hang out, we all, you know, pass memes to each other or jokes or whatnot. So how is it that as an individual, I might be perpetrate, um, I might be feeding into the sexual violence culture by, you know, not either correcting or, or questioning my friend when they make a, a joke about an individual um, or another person or share something that's inappropriate. And rather than having that difficult conversation with someone, I just brush it off, you know, and like remove myself from the circumstance. And so I think that we're to the point where we're open enough where we can start to have these conversations and really try to keep each other accountable for our actions and let individuals know that as a society, the first step happens with us of sharing the message that that isn't okay. That is not correct. Um, it, like it's not funny um, and that we don't agree with with certain behaviors that, that might that might cause that sexual violence. That is so important. I think that's one of the most important things to, to know, to have those difficult conversations. And sometimes it is scary because I've had those conversations. It is scary. You can feel scared if, oh, you're, they're going to judge you for some reason. But it is so important that truly change comes within us, right? Within our networks. And that's how we move forward. Now, Sandra, um, now that we're talking about, you know, youth and, and all these things that the statistic that you shared before, as you know, you know, sexual violence can start from a very, very young age. How can we effectively support our teens and how can we create spaces where they can, you know, have honest conversations about these topics and how can we empower our youth? I think that the, the, so the, the point of our empowerment project was really a pilot program um, that started, like I said, in, in Andrews High School. And it's, and it's grown to other schools. I think they're in Canotillo and then Socorro. And so they're really trying to connect. And so I think that as a, as a community or collaboratively, working within your community with your local crisis center um, and us working with like your schools, parents, um, individuals to be able to essentially give the youth um, the opportunity to be heard. And I know that sounds weird because 
you know, you think of social media and everything that they post that you think, well, they're always heard, right? They're, they're communicating all the time. But I think oftentimes we tend to minimize um, our young adults in our community. Um, for instance, when they start relationships, if it's not really a relationship, it's, you know, it's not, um, you know, there's going to be other loves in your life or whatever that, that may be. Um, but those relationships, it's not like an on and off switch. It, it doesn't mean that at some point, you know, you tick over to 21 and now starting from this day forward, all these relationships are, are valid, right? And they're important. And the other ones, well, they were just, they weren't important. Um, it, the way we love and the way we, we create relationships isn't an on and off switch. You, you start with relationships at, at such a young age when, you know, with your parents, with your family. And so I think for, for youth, starting those conversations and weaving it into our school system and not being afraid to do so. I think oftentimes when you think of um, sexual awareness, sexual assault, um, domestic violence, or any conversation with, you know, the word sex in it, it's, oh, I don't want my children to be exposed to that because I don't want them to get an idea that I'm agreeing with something (laughs) or another. And so it's not about that. It's about they are getting ideas and they're probably getting it from the wrong sources um, because they are viewing things more now than ever. You know, young children have access to pretty much everything with smartphones. And so I think it's being conscientious and taking account to appropriateness in terms of age is really important. But I think shying away from it is where historically we've always said, you know, people get the wrong information from friends and family sometimes, um, or they make up their own information, uh, which is incorrect. Yes, I I know I, when I was in high school, you would get your information from, you know, your friends and what they were experiencing. Conversations are looking like? Yeah, yeah, um, because, you know, you would only get this information from a health class and it was like a one-time thing and that was it. Um, Exactly. And like your junior year or something, (laughs) you were already almost out of high school. (laughs) Yes. And especially, well, I was in private school, right? So those topics are even like a big no, 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 you know? So, and and it's, it's nothing scary, you know, it's, it's part of life. And that's why we need to normalize these topics because we, of course, we want a youth to get the right information and to have the right tools to defend themselves when they're out there in the world. Um, and now going a little bit back into healing and, you know, for people who are listening to this and might have had an experience or know someone who, who has an experience with sexual violence, what, is, what, is, what services do you think are most valuable for a person in a healing path from sexual violence in a short term and long term? So I think that the most important thing is when someone makes an outcry, however, either insignificant you think it is or um and they and and i know it sounds harsh when i'm saying the word insignificant because sometimes people will hear something be like oh that's that's not a big deal um it is a big deal if they're vocalizing it to you it's because they were affected by it and so i think the main thing is to ensure that that individual feels that they're believed and that they're not being judged and that even if I don't know where to send them, 
as an individual is, you know what, we're going to do it together and I'm going to help you find something. So in the, in the short term, it's simple. Just belief. Don't, don't judge. Don't question. Don't blame. On, on the long term, there's obviously the long term component of this is going to be a work in progress. And so depending on the individual's coping skills, um, situations, on reoccurring either thoughts, times of year, smells, there's triggers that sometimes as an individual, they don't even, they're not aware that they have. And so part of that is seeking help. And what that help looks like will look different for different individuals, whether it's talking to a caseworker and that's the person you feel most comfortable with. Um, hopefully getting into therapy is a huge component and connecting with those individuals and making sure that you're working through that process and understanding that it's not just a set of, you know, an eight to 10 sessions, you know, life has been solved and you're going to be okay. It yeah. might be that, you know, you, you take this a couple of sessions and I feel okay now and people drop off. It, it, it happens. Life happens. And then in another several months or years, um, something happens that causes me to go right back to that incident. And so I feel like I need support again. And so reaching out for that support um, again at that point. And so the long term is going to be completely, obviously, individualized to, to everyone's own needs. The main thing is to be able to identify what those needs are at that particular time and know that, uh, you know, agencies like, like ours with the center is it, the incident didn't just have to happen. We understand the complexities of it and completely understand that you might need to access services 10 years after your assault, you know, um, and might come a couple of times and then several months later might come again. And so it's really at your pace, um, but also looking and ensuring that you're getting the help that you need and, and knowing that it's going to be a, uh, it's going to be a road. It's a road to recovery. Right. Whatever, whatever those services look for you, right? Um, I know I shared a couple of times in this podcast that my healing journey um, began with yoga. Um, that's when I, through meditation, I realized, oh, there are some things that I need to discuss with a professional. And it's ongoing. I feel that everyone's healing path is ongoing and it, it doesn't have an expiration date. Um, I was just in a counseling session a few minutes ago before we started our interview. And I told her, you know, I am starting to realize, really realize that healing journeys are not lineal. They're never lineal. And whatever that service looks like for you, it might look counseling session at first and then you know, later on, it looks something different, but definitely getting the help that you may need is important. And realizing that there's so many options, you know, that's why are the main reason why we wanted to provide non-traditional therapy through our FRC, because we realized that, you know, there might be a stigma and that's okay if you can start with non-traditional at first and then ease your way into traditional therapy and provide different options because not we're not the same right it that way our healing journey looks different right no and i think that 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 once you come to realize what works for you because i think the other big thing that we've talked to our clients a lot about is 
you also have to, aside from the type of therapy you're receiving, right? So whether it's EMDR, whether, you know, it's cognitive, whether it's group therapy, individual therapy, it's also, you have to connect with that individual who's providing that service. If, if you're unable to build trust, just because the individual's yes. a therapist doesn't mean that, you know, the gates open up and that makes sense. And this is going to now be the savior. And it's going to work. It really needs to feel natural to you as an individual. Understand also that there might be points where they're challenging you, right? And pushing you to kind of process a particular incident. Mm-hmm. Um, but really figuring out what works best for you. And, and unfortunately, I don't have the answer for that. So you as an individual have to try different modes of therapy um, and of services to see what feels right, what you connect with. And then that's when you'll see the biggest, um, I don't want to say results, but where you'll get the most out of that particular service. Yes, that's what I always discuss with close friends because I am very open about mental health and, you know, this topic that's around mental health and they ask me, like, where can I go? Would you have any recommendation? And I tell them, I do. I have these, these, these people in mind, but just be aware that there has to be a connection and maybe at the first session, you're not going to feel that connection and you might feel more comfortable with another person, but don't let that be, um, don't let that stop you from seeking um, professional help if you need it, because that's definitely important. You know, we all connect with different people, just like as we do with our friends. We have different people in our lives that we connect stronger with. So mental health uh, professionals, I think, work the same. This is United and Resilient. We'll be right back. My name is David Stout, and I'm a county commissioner of Uh, Here in El Paso, Texas, I represent Precinct 2. Uh, The Walmart where the shooting happened on August 3rd is actually located within the precinct that I represent. Uh, Where was I on August 3rd? I was, I had just gotten back from a trip to, uh, a work trip to Austin and was having breakfast with uh, some friends and over in Ciudad Juarez. And uh, all of a sudden I received a text message that said that there was an active shooter situation in the Cielo Vista area. And immediately I was just, I was confused because I I really didn't know what was going on and I would never have thought that something like that would ever come across my cell phone being here in El Paso. Uh, So I I immediately crossed back to El Paso and made contact with University Medical Center with Jacobson Throne, the CEO over there, uh, because I expected that if there were any victims, uh, anybody who was hurt, that they would maybe have been taken to UMC since it's close by. He did confirm that they that they were receiving patients. And uh, so I you know, I got myself together and, and a little bit later actually went down to UMC and where Dr. Tyrock, who's the head of trauma at UMC and Jacobson Throne, did a press conference uh, to talk about uh, the patients that they were receiving and the treatment that they were giving to them. Uh, and. and within those patients was actually a, a baby. Uh, so, you know, I, I actually ended up doing a, an interview in Spanish uh, after the press conference to help with uh, the Spanish language TV stations. And, you know, it was just really difficult because I really didn't know what to say. Um, you know, we, this is something that uh, we never expected to happen here in El Paso. And uh, as, as more details came in and more information came in, 
as to uh, who the shooter was and, and what the motivation for the shooting was. It, it just uh, became, it was just so heartbreaking. And, you know, as, as, the, uh, as the hours passed and, 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 and the next couple of days, you know, there wasn't a lot of sleep to be had. Uh, we had the opportunity to visit the site where at the school behind uh, where the shooting took place, uh, where families were being serviced and, and waiting to hear about their family members. And it was just a very, just very sad and, and, and just very difficult. I, I can't even imagine how those folks were feeling as they were sitting there waiting for the news regarding their loved ones. But, you know, the way that this community responded, the way that, you know, our EMS and first responders showed up uh, and did what they had to do, the way that uh, our folks at UMC, at the, at the hospital, took care of these folks, you know, all of the training and education that they have gone through, they, they put it into motion and they knew exactly what to do. And, and, you know, the way that this community came together and, in unity, not just that day, but you know, in the days after and, and the weeks and months after, especially doing things like creating the, the Family Resiliency Center and um, making sure that folks are being taken care of. Uh, it was really uplifting and very heartening to see how this community unified. And I really hope that this never happens to another community. Uh, but you know, the way that we responded and it was was just uh, was just amazing, and it made me really proud to be an El Paso. Now, Sandra, I want to talk about a little bit about domestic violence. I know this topic is surrounding sexual violence, but I definitely think domestic violence is equally as important. So, could you briefly discuss the importance of raising awareness of domestic violence? Um, how are they related to sexual violence, and how are they? and if they are treated differently. So domestic violence, so and how they're related, if you, so the movement of domestic violence, we love wheels. Um, if you just Google power and control wheel, you'll find the power and control wheel usually with an equality wheel on the other side. And so if you look at that wheel, what you'll notice is domestic violence, there's a lot of, like there's verbal, emotional, physical and sexual. Those are the, the four categories that we generally will do an assessment um, around. So verbal and emotional is what's on the wheel in itself. It's talking about all these things that and they're called tactics that are utilized within a, in an unhealthy relationship. All, again, nothing being physical. It's just all verbal and emotional. And if you look at the, the same wheel, the outer part of the wheel will illustrate physical and sexual violence. So what happens is in these relationships, when these tactics, and there's eight of them that are all verbal and emotional, are being utilized, and then at some point they stop working or the, uh, the offender feels that they're not working, they will then incorporate physical and sexual violence more often than not. Um, there isn't anything that shows like there's a timeline. Like I can't tell you most relationships will be verbal and emotionally abusive X amount of time before they become physically or, or sexually abusive. Each situation, again, is very individualized, but their correlation is it's the escalation of, um, like, it can, like, if you want to think of it as, like, even step four, right? Like, it's, it's an ex, 
uh, an escalation of the abuse that gets to the physical and sexual violence. Um, in terms of how they're treated differently, I will tell you in 2015 is when we became your local rape crisis center. We incorporated those sexual assault services into, into the center's um, mission and we started providing those services in the hospital with um, hospital accompaniment. And I remember when we rolled out the concept, we had been working with victims of sexual assault prior to this um, in conjunction with the old rape crisis center that was in our community. And, you know, I always thought with domestic violence, it was hard in our community to, to talk to people about it because they often felt like the victim has a choice and they're choosing not to leave these relationships. And so we do a lot of education around there's these dynamics that are happening within domestic violence and that are causing these barriers. And so it's not as easy to leave. Um, people often say, well, if you know, everybody ever hit me, I would automatically leave. Well, generally the relationship doesn't start with, you know, a, a first time physical attack because then obviously you would have left. There's um, a building up to it, unfortunately. There's children, there's emotional connections, there's, there's all these circumstances. But when we started providing sexual assault services, I was really shocked at the response and some of the calls that we were receiving from our community. So we did this campaign around, you know, we're now providing these services. If you need help, call our, our hope line. And I remember the first week we had gotten some, I thought to me, shocking calls in terms of people in our community calling us and saying, um, essentially victim blaming, like we need to teach individuals, you know, how to dress and, you know, where to not go and not to drink um, oh, wow. if they're youth. And I was so disappointed because, like I said, I think we've, we've made, you know, leaps and bounds in terms of progress as, as a society. And then you're reminded that, there's still a ways to go, unfortunately. So while I think that, like, I don't think that this is the way the majority of El Paso thinks by any means, but there is still a significant amount of individuals, right? So to me, significant is even if it's 10% of the population, that's still too much for me because these conversations are still happening. And what's more heartbreaking to me is that there's people listening to these conversations right, where they are victim blaming. Um, and so I, it, it completely opened up my eyes that, oh my God, I thought people saw domestic violence, like really was always blaming the victim and the, how horrible that is. But when we opened ourselves up to sexual assault, I was like, oh my God, it's like a hundred times worse. Like there's just so much work to be done yeah. um, in terms of how we're even just having conversations and perceptions of these individuals who are, who are going through it. And so you have these conversations at home, right? Your kids are listening to you when you watch the news and you make a comment about, you know what I mean? A particular case. And so I don't think we give that enough weight because if I'm saying something negative about either a domestic violence news story or a sexual assault news story, um, I have two boys. Um, they're young adults now. They're 18 and, and 22. But I'm affecting how they think about the world, right? If they were ever sexually assaulted and they were, um, and I'm constantly saying things like, oh, it can never happen to a man. 
You know what I mean? Like you're not a real man if, if you let it happen or, or, you know, real men, you know, that they wouldn't have been sexually assaulted because, you know, they would have enjoyed it type of thing. Do you think that they're going to come and disclose to me, you know, if, if they were faced with that same circumstance? No, no. Right. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. And so I think that, I don't think we realize how does it like, does it chiquitos, right? Our, since they're little, we're, we're already creating and affecting our children's thoughts and ideas. Mm-hmm. And what is safe to tell mom and dad? Because I've seen how they react. And so, and, and not to say that I have it right, because by all means, you know, they don't come with an instruction book, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> of course. But I try really hard in terms of communication. Um, and then what I would say for parents is, if you're going to have open communication, you also can't choose when to cl- close that door, right? So you have right. to be ready for anything and everything they might say, even though I don't agree with some of the stuff that they might be saying or sharing. Um, but you have to really pick and choose and how to what needs to be addressed, right? And what's part of growing up. And then even when I am trying to address or help them with something, that it's not punitive. It's not um, like I know better because I'm an adult because the world that, and I, I kind of sound like my mom now, but the world that I grew up was very different than the world now, you know, right. I, I didn't have social media or a constant cool phone that I was walking around with all the time. So it, unfortunately I think we'll all get to the point where we'll say things like, well, back in my day, it wasn't like that, but it's true, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so I'm glad they're having those conversations with me, but I'm like, oh my God, I told my husband, did you just hear what he said? And he's like, I did. And I'm like, I didn't know what to say. He's like, neither did I. <laughs> and that's okay, right? Because sometimes they will tell me, mom, I'm going to tell you something, but I don't want you to tell me anything. I just want you to listen. And I told them, you need to tell me that because I'm, I'm a problem solver, right? I want to fix it. And so if you don't want me to fix it, then tell me, I just want you to hear me. And that's what I'll do. And it's hard. It's so hard. Right. I'm I'm thinking about, (laughs) I'm just thinking about when I was a kid and there was this like conversation going around in school that we were like, have your parents had the talk with you? And it was just one conversation, right? It was just one day where our parents were really uncomfortable and we were uncomfortable and we had that conversation and that's it. You never talk about it again. <laughs> and, and it's so important to keep the conversation going, like you said. And I'm thinking about um, one of my friends, uh, she, she said she was a young mom. She, she had her baby as a young teenager. And now as she's growing up, her daughter they have a very open conversations about these issues. And I just really admire her because I'm like, again, like I said in the beginning, I wish I had that. I wish I had all those tools from a very, very young age. And um, so, yeah, thank you for, for, for mentioning that. Now, as we head towards our, um, I'm so sorry that this conversation is ending. I'm enjoying this so much. I think this topic is so important. Um, But now I'm thinking about like the call to action items that we we need to discuss. Um, You know, April is, is, as I mentioned, is Sexual Violence Awareness Month. Um, But how can we take awareness to to action? How can we get involved? How can we uh, raise awareness from where we are um, into our workspaces, with our families, with our friends? Um, 
how can we get more involved in as a hands-on? So sexual assault, you said, is, um, or April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And so our campaign for actually this month is, it, it is, is three simple questions. So consent starts with three words. Is it okay? It's that simple. So what we're going to try to focus on or ensure is that, or the call to action, if you will, is to start practicing consent with your friends and family. So if you think about, you know, work, you always ask, we're constantly asking like, hey, do you want to go to lunch? Hey, you know, is it okay? Can I come in? Um, whatever. We, we, ha- we tend to extend certain courtesies to individuals not within our same household that we don't necessarily replicate at home. And so when you're thinking about consent with our kids even, and just what we do even as Hispanics, in terms of, you know, when you come into a household, the first thing we do is saludamos, right? Like, saluda tu tía, say hi to your aunt, your cousin, whoever. For a male, it's perfectly acceptable to allow them to shake hands, right? Or wave or whatnot. For a female, the expectation is what? Okay, so Dale no Exactly. Abrázalo y dale un beso, right? Mm-hmm. And we do it with our kids since they were little, especially little girls. And we don't give them the option to consent because there's nothing wrong with her waving or saying hi, but that's not the expectation. The expectation is you will hug and kiss everyone, a stranger or not, or family member, you're going to do it to everyone. And so I would extend the idea of consent around those circumstances, consent around we're in the day and age of social media where we take pictures of everything and post it. And so one thing is when our kids are babies, right, or or toddlers, we do it and we share it and that's perfectly fine. But as a young adult growing up, when you're feeling awkward, when you're, you know, we're trying to instill like what consent is, is exercise that practice with your preteens and your adolescents is, when is it okay for me to take your picture? Um, Out of the pictures, which one do you like? Which one can I post, right? Is it okay if I post it? And I know sometimes for some people, this might feel a little weird, but if we don't start to start somewhere with basic things that we want them to later on practice of why did you put that picture up of yourself doing X, Y, and Z, it's because we never taught it to them from the beginning. Again, I really love this campaign of, it just starts with three words. Is it okay? I love that. Thank you so much, Sandra. It's something that I'm definitely going to incorporate with my own family. <laughs> definitely when they <laughs> open the door <laughs> and I'm working. Um, Sandra, now my last question would be, what is the message of hope for people out there who are listening? The message of hope is that the community of El Paso is here to help you. Um, regardless whether it's something with domestic violence, sexual assault, um, the heinous victimization that we all experience in August is that El Paso is a community that truly cares about one another. Um, and if you, if you ask for help, there is help available. And so I always, I, I, I keep repeating this um, to a few individuals is while there's a, a solution, right, while there's a process or an option for help, there's hope. And so to me, that's the main thing. I'll worry about something when 
there's like a dead end and I feel like there's no, no option, but ask for help. Um, look for it, demand it for yourself. Um, and that's the hope that I think that our community lends to one another. I love that. It, there, there are so many helping hands in our community. And I think that was the standard and that's what we saw on August 3rd, right? So many helping hands. So Sandra, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this conversation. Like I said, I really enjoyed it and it was very insightful. So thank you. No, thank you for the opportunity, Mariana. It was a pleasure.